Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, interest rates are going up again. Inflationary deficits by this liberal government are driving up inflation and interest rates. The Bank of Canada hiked the key lending rate by half a percentage point. So is this it, or will the bank raise rates in the new year to further ease inflation? We'll get dig into the numbers in just a little bit and urgently investigating espionage concerns. We will have uh, some real questions for uh, the independent public service that uh, signed these contracts, uh, and we'll make sure uh, that uh, this has changed. The Prime Minister promises a review after Canadians learned that a Chinese-linked company that was given an RCMP communications contract is facing espionage charges in the U.S. We'll have the details, plus break down the potential national security risk. Then, dissecting the Democrats' win. How does the Senate race win in Georgia set the tone for the 2024 presidential race? And What's the state of Canada-U.S. relations? We'll ask U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, as he celebrates his first year on the job. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Well, tis the season of giving, and the Bank of Canada is giving Canadians another rate hike. Now, some might feel like it's a boring pair of socks, but like that pair of socks, this increase does have a purpose. The central bank raised the key rate by 50 basis points to 4.25%. The last time the rate was this high was back in January of 2008. That's just the latest move by the bank to curb inflation. The consumer price index, though, remained high in October at 6.9%. That's well above the bank's 2% inflationary target. This rate hike is the seventh consecutive rate increase this year alone. So, will the last rate hike of this year stabilize the economy for 2023, or should we prepare for more economic pain in the new year? Let's find out. And joining me from BNN Bloomberg is Kumara Ramadathan. Thank you so much for being here. Let's talk about this rate hike first. It was more than economists had expected, and also bigger than the markets had really baked in. How's the reaction so far? Well, there's that initial sticker shock, right? 50 basis points takes the overnight rate to 4.25%, which is a level we have not seen since the 2008 financial mm -hmm. crisis. But the overall takeaway is really in that nuanced conversation in the following press release on the back of those numbers. And so the real takeaway here is, yes, the rates are still very much in elevated territory, but in terms of future rate hikes, the door is open for potential moderation, and that is something the market is seeing as a dovish signal. So has the central bank given us any type of clues on the state of the Canadian economy right now? Well, that was the other important takeaway from this press release. They talked about how their efforts earlier this year, aggressive rate hikes, they received so much criticism from all political stripes about mm -hmm. what it was doing for the average Canadian. Basically, they said on a three-month rolling basis, they took an average and they see that demand is starting to ease. And that's an important you know, focal point for the market to understand that, yes, we had to be aggressive early on, but those results are really feeding into the Canadian economy much more faster than even the U.S., I would argue, it just had to use a little bit more blunt force in terms of bringing right. down decades-high inflation. So in the Canadian economy, we are seeing signs of hope. Hope that Canadians can take going into the holiday season. And what kind of hope or what are you looking for 
tomorrow because we're expecting the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada to be giving a speech. What are you looking for in that speech? Is there any kind of indication on what the road forward might be? Well, we're going to be looking for that long-term view in terms of economic growth or lack thereof for Canada. Of course, in the last monetary policy report, which accompanied the last rate mm -hmm. decision, they said that the Canadian economy was very much slowing down and will continue into the first half of next year. They echoed that same sentiment in this press release from today. Now, in terms of that long-term view, the deputy governor will give a road ahead, most likely. Will she hold to any firm figures? Likely not. Mm -hmm. But she will give us a sense and some clues as to the health and virility of the overall economy and what that means for the pace of hikes in the future. And that's really what we need to focus on. How important is that message? And I want to talk to you about this because Canadians will be talking about this around mm -hmm. the holiday tables. How important is that message tomorrow and how pointed it will be? I guess it depends on how much she is willing to acquiesce in terms of where the Bank of Canada sees rates in the future and how much those demand pressures are starting to ease for everyday Canadians. Of course, we continue to hear that raging debate about mortgages mm -hmm. and lines of credit and uh, you know a number of issues being impacted by this higher rate environment. They're getting that message, but they also need to make sure that they keep things in line and on track, and that is their job at the end of the day. So really, they are balancing, you know, what is a difficult situation to be for the Canadian economy. But again, the efforts they have put in, as they said in today's mm -hmm. release, are paying off. Yeah, a lot of Canadians will be looking for that. Kumara Ramanathan, thank you so much from BNN Blueberg. Thanks for being here again. Appreciate this. Thank you. And higher rates means if you have a mortgage with a variable interest rate, your monthly payment will be going up. And the cost to borrow money will be more expensive. And it comes at a time where many Canadians are already cash-strapped. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Polyev earlier today. The reality is Justin Trudeau is responsible for the massive increase in interest rates and the massive increase in uh, inflation, and the average Canadian is paying the price for that. So what can the government do to help Canadians with rising costs? Well, let's bring in Associate Finance Minister Randy Boissonneau. Welcome, Minister. Thanks for joining us. First off, we want to remind viewers that the government does not dictate what the Bank of Canada does with its rates. But earlier this year, the central bank did indicate that it would be raising those rates. And your government's fall economic update did not bring in new measures to help all Canadians to deal with the high cost of living. Now that Canadians are dealing with these rates that we haven't seen in 14 years, did your government miss an opportunity to provide some more broad-based help in that fall economic statement? Well, Mike, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. And I think where we should start is just stating really clearly that uh, I know that Canadians are living through a tough time. I hear it from people in my own writing. And I think if we take a look, uh, we got to go look back a few years to making sure that when we put in place the Canada Child Benefit, we knew it would give more money to parents. When we, just a year ago, announced historic child care agreements, cutting child care fees in half, that that would put thousands of dollars in the pockets of Canadians, that we wanted to make sure that, you know, middle-class Canadians, Canadians had that buffer to be able to withstand whatever the economy would throw at us. And I think you had a lead-in from the the opposition leader. And I just have to say, you know, really straight off the top that 
what the leader said is just wrong. Um, if you take a look at the Scotiabank report today uh, on our COVID spend, our COVID investments in Canadians, uh, negligible impact on inflation. And quite frankly, we staved off a huge deflation. Canadians needed us to lean in. We leaned in. And in terms of supports, I think, Mike, what's really important is today we got the fall economic statement passed. And there's really good supports in there to eliminate uh, the interest on student loans to make sure that people can save money tax-free for their first home, that people who are you know, making low income, but they're really strong workers, they're able to get their Canada workers benefit much faster. And on top of that, we paid down the deficit. So we have the lowest deficit in the G7. And we're actually making investments that are going to grow the economy, which should take some heat out of the economy, thus leading to uh, lower inflation into 23 and into 24. But Mr. Boisson, so when does that come? Because when you say taking heat off the economy, Canadians are sitting back, paying more at the grocery store, more at other places as well. And they wonder if they are not getting that targeted support that your government has put in, then what is the help for them? Well, I think if there are, I think it's uh, millions of Canadians that are going to have the benefit of the doubling of the, the, the GST tax credit, Mike, and also other supports that we've had in place uh, for quite some time. And if you take a look at the supports that we put in place in the fall, like the $500 top up for housing and other measures that we put in place, look. I think it was just last week we opened uh, the portal on CRA for Canadians to go have access to dental care. And we got the numbers today from my colleague, the Minister of Children and Families, Honorable Corinna Gould, 35,000. Canadian families have already applied to the portal so that they can get the $630 for each of their children under 12. And these are families, Mike, that make less than $90,000. So that's $630 this year, $630 next year for each kid. Some of them who might not have been to the dentist for a while. Those are the kind of supports that we have put in place. And look, Mike, you're right. We've had to be targeted. We want to make sure that we don't have broad-based supports that might then increase uh, inflation. So we've been targeted, we've been compassionate, and then? we're making sure. So, so Minister, with well, all we due respect, make sure then, what about those Canadians that are not getting yep. the targeted supports? What about those Canadians? Yep. So this is why we said very clearly that we had Canadians backs during the pandemic. We put in place a number of supports, like I said, the child care benefit, the child care fees. And we have to make sure that we don't go back to pandemic supports and then make the job of the Bank of Canada even harder. You're right off the, tar- off, the, off, the st- off the start to say that the Bank of Canada has the responsibility for monetary policy. And let's just review what their mandate is. Their mandate set last December was to keep inflation within 2%. We're at 69 now. You've seen the statement from the, the bank today. And they have been very clear that core inflation is higher than we want it to be. It seems to be stabilizing, but they're going to use the tools they need to get that down. And, and we're in for a turbulent economic time. It's going to be uh, 2023 uh, is going to present us with some challenges and, and we're going to be in this together and we're going to continue to focus on those Canadians who need the support the most when they need it the most. Minister, on another note, I know this is not your file, but the federal sure. government did award a contract for RCMP communications equipment mm-hmm. to Sinclair Technologies, an Ontario-based company that was mm-hmm. taken over by a Chinese company, which was deemed a national security risk by the U.S. Is your government considering terminating that contract now? 
I think the Prime Minister was very clear earlier today. I take this very seriously. So does he. So do our colleagues. We're going to review this swiftly. Uh, senior officials are reviewing this decision now. We take national security uh, at the utmost importance. We're going to move on this. Uh, the security of Canadians, of our businesses, of our healthcare system, of our government is a primary concern for us. It's, number, it's job number one after keeping Canadians safe. So we're going to move quickly on this and get to the bottom of it and do what we need to do to make sure that we're protecting uh, national security interests. Associate Finance Minister Randy Boissonneau, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Now, as Minister Boissonneau did mention there, the Prime Minister did weigh in on national security concerns around that RCMP equipment contract. Have a listen to what he said earlier today. I find it disconcerting that while uh, parts of the government security agencies um, were advising us as a government and as Canadians uh, that we have to be very careful about foreign interference in our institutions, in our structures, in, our, uh, in the way we uh, do business and keep Canadians safe, that other parts uh, of the civil service were signing contracts uh, that have questionable uh, levels of uh, security. Again, the Prime Minister said today that his government is investigating the contract for more. Let's bring in CTV's Annie Bergeron Oliver. Annie, you've been digging into this. So what's the nature of the contract and what else have you found? So let's start with the company and the organizational chart. So Sinclair Technologies is a company that's based in Ontario, but its parent company is called Norsat. And in 2017, Norsat was purchased by a company called Hytera. Now, Hytera is partially owned by the Chinese government. It's interesting to look at the background because in 2017, the Trudeau government had to green light that deal. And it was done despite some concerns about national security from the opposition, the conservatives at the time, as well as the Americans. Hytera is a company that in the United States. Their products are banned from being sold or imported because of national security concerns. And the company has also been uh, charged with 21 espionage-related offenses. Mm -hmm. So this is a company that the Americans have a lot of concern with. So now let's look at the contract. So this morning it was revealed that the RCMP went into a contract worth about $549,000. That was awarded last year for um, equipment related to building a radio frequency network. So I went online and did a bit of digging, and it turns out that appears to to not be the only contract that has been issued to Sinclair Technologies. When I went online and looked at some of the publicly available contracts, you know, based in starting in 2017, there were other contracts issued to the RCMP or from the RCMP, right. the Department of National Defense. Um, one contract was worth $2 million in total. Uh, there was a contract for $591,000 made to Sinclair Technologies. Right. And there was also one contract with D&D that didn't have any value associated with it. And it was to Sinclair Technologies. And it was for antennas that were supposed to be delivered to the bases. So what is the government saying about how all of this came to be and how it happened? So Trudeau today said, you know, this is something that he needs to look at, that they're going to review. He seemed to put the blame on the public servants and said, you know, it's hard when they're trying to get tough on foreign interference to see, you know, public servants approving something like this, a right. contract that he called um, of a concern. But again, it, it appears based on the publicly available contracts that there were multiple contracts awarded to Sinclair Technologies since it was taken over or its parent company was taken over by the Chinese government. So it doesn't appear, at least from the 
online um, contract records that this was a one-time thing. It appears that there's at least three or four other instances over the last five or six years in which contracts were issued to Sinclair. So I think that's also another question. Are all of these contracts going to be reviewed? Is it just the one? And why did the government continue its relationship with this company that does have ties to the Chinese government, you know, despite concerns right. from the Americans and from others? We've reached out to the departments. We haven't heard anything yet, but hopefully we will soon. And we will continue to watch this for your report on CTV National News tonight. Appreciate it. Annie Bergeron Oliver joining us here in studio is still to come, taking the temperature of Canada-U.S. relations. What are the top priorities for our countries heading into the next year? And how does last night's Senate runoff race change the political conversation? We'll talk to U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, next on Power Play. In the words of President John F. Kennedy, when speaking about Canada and U.S., he said, geography has made us neighbors and history has made us friends. Now, the man charged with helping to grow that friendship has just celebrated his one-year anniversary as the U.S. ambassador to Canada. Like any friend and neighbor, we've had our differences over the years, but we've united in the face of COVID-19 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So what is the state of the Canada-U.S. relations right now, and what can we look forward to in 2023, well, joining me right now is the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. Thank you for making the time. Didn't have time to bake a cake for your one-year anniversary, <laughs> but welcome. I want it's to good st- to be here. I did when I, I, I multiple anniversaries. So I arrived here on December 1st. Right. So that's a form of anniversary. And first, I was traveling. So first thing in the morning, I got an email from my wife that said, happy anniversary. So I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. As long as you didn't miss your actual wedding anniversary. I wanted to talk to you about the last night's U.S. Senate runoff in Georgia. Okay. Uh, You had Democrat Raphael Warnock narrowly defeating Republican Herschel Walker. Mm -hmm. It was a very close result, even though, and I know this is kind of a celebration for the Democrats, that it was another defeat of an election denier. How does this really sort of set the table for the 2024 U.S. presidential election? So, um, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the United States ambassador to Canada. I've sort of given up my political... Right, no, of course, career. of course. Um, but I can't control myself, and it's rude to not answer your question. So <laughs> I'm happy to have a little bit of a discussion about that. I'd say, first of all, I actually don't think the election was that close. You have to remember how Republican a state Georgia is. And for um, a Democrat to win um, the third consecutive statewide election in Senate races, if John Ossoff, Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, and then Raphael Warnock again, is pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I think it demonstrates the um, the impact of having a quality candidate um, and having an electorate that listens, which is one of the hallmarks, I think, of a democracy. I think. The election in Georgia, I think, frankly, the 22 midterm elections all bode very well for the state of democracy. And I think that bodes well for the 24 election and going forward. And it's not just the results. I mean, uh, this is the first time in 88 years that every incumbent senator, every incumbent Democratic senator won Mm -hmm. in the election. Um, There were 16 election deniers who were running for Secretary of State positions, every single one of them lost. But maybe most importantly, is this election represented a little bit of a return to normalcy in democratic politics, not 
small d democratic yeah. politics, which is you have an election, people disagree, they argue, they debate, and then there's election night and somebody wins, somebody loses, the loser concedes, and we go on. But and even Herschel Walker, I have to say this, you call him an election denier, he didn't run on the basis of election denial, but his concession speech, I think, was remarkable. He conceded. He conceded in a close election. Right. It wasn't very close, in my opinion, but he conceded, and he touted the benefit and the value of democracy, and that's the way, that's the way elections used to run, and I think that's the trend that this election has started. And you say used to. I guess that's why I'm asking. Is this the beginning of the end of the Donald Trump era, especially when you see some of his closest supporters in the past, Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, both signaling that they may take him on? So I, um, I'm, I'm sort of uncomfortable commenting. I, I, I think it'd be premature to declare Donald Trump gone. But I do think that the... Um, I do think that it is the beginning of the end of election denialism, of MAGA. I mean, I just, I just, I think it's run its course. And I think, um, you know, one of the things about politics is it's a real herd mentality. Mm -hmm. People try something when it works and they see it works, they go and they try it. It's where all those election deniers came from who yeah. ran. But when you start losing, then nobody wants to use the line anymore. And I think that's what you saw in this election. I wanted to ask you about something that, you know, we've been working on in our newsroom today, specifically about this RCMP contract um, that was given to a Chinese-owned company, uh, Hytera. Uh, an unsealed federal U.S. indictment from February this year re revealed that Hytera faces 21 charges related to conspiracy uh, to theft of trade secrets. Does an incident like this, in your opinion, erode the confidence in an ally like Canada, given that there, this was publicly available information and Canada had signed contracts with it? So I, I think the answer is it, it doesn't erode the confidence. Contracting, this is a very difficult area to govern. Um, I just heard on, on your show mm -hmm. the 100% appropriate response by Minister Bossano to this situation, which is we're going to jump on it. We're going to look at it. It's not too late can be fixed. Um, and I, you know, this, the whole world of cybersecurity, of um, Chinese ownership of, of American companies, Canadian companies, of contracting with Chinese owned and controlled companies is unbelievably dangerous and unbelievably complicated. And the key thing is whether the sensitivity is there to be able to look at those situations and to take action when you need to do that. Um, Canada just demonstrated a very aggressive willingness to take action to order the divestiture of um, Chinese interests from three um, critical minerals companies, mm -hmm. which I think was, you know, was a was a remarkable demonstration of China's of Canada's commitment to trying to keep clean and keep clear Chinese business and industry. And as I say, I think Minister Bossano's reaction was exactly the right reaction. Related to that, I wanted to ask you before we leave it here, BNN and Bloomberg is reporting that Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, along with President Obrador and uh, President uh, Biden, are going to be meeting in Mexico uh, for that so-called Three Amigos, the North American Leaders Summit, in January. How important now is the North American alliance in the face of countries like Russia and China that continue to play hardball on the world stage? So I, I've always thought that the, that the alliance between Mexico, Canada, and the United States was important. 
competition increasingly is occurring uh, globally on a regional basis. Mm -hmm. There's much less competition between the United States and Canada, between Canada and Mexico. Now our competition um, and our most important competition are blocks and our company and our countries like um, Russia and China. So I do think this, the North American troika is very important. I think the North America leadership summits um, have been very important in bringing the leaders together um, and in giving them an opportunity to coordinate strategy and to set a direction for what they would like to do together over, over a period of time. Um, I know the president is very much looking forward to this next installment mm -hmm. of the North American Leadership Summit. Thank you. Ambassador Cohen, thank you again for joining us here. And again, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the air. I appreciate it. I appreciate that as well. Now here are some other news that you need to know. Doctors in British Columbia are calling for a return to mandatory masking in the wake of the news of six children that have now died of the flu in the province over the last two weeks. It's very important to, to keep these kids protected with other measures like masking. Um, keeping them out of huge crowds, certainly keeping them away from sickness when possible. Um, I, I think that we have to use all the layers of protection that we have to, to help our children during this very difficult time. Nine-year-old Isla, who was on the left there, died last week, while six-year-old Danielle, who was on the right, died at the end of November. CTV News has also learned that at least two children uh, at least two of those children who died were toddlers. Some parents have said that they've had difficulty booking flu vaccinations for their children through the province's website. A dramatic series of raids across Germany today where police arrested 25 people suspected of plotting to overthrow the government. Germany's justice minister described the raids as an anti-terrorism operation. It's alleged the group consists of far-right extremists, including a judge and a former military commander. The federal government has announced $800 million in new funding for indigenous-led con conservation projects. It comes as a major United Nations summit on biodiversity is being held in Montreal this week. But our economy, all of our activities rely on ecosystems that are healthy and resilient. Prime Minister Trudeau says the funding will bring Canada closer to achieving the goal of protecting 30% of land and water by the year 2030. Well, coming up, the Bank of Canada's key policy rate is now at its highest since 2008. How will Canadians handle higher rates on top of the country's affordability crisis? A senior economist from Desjardins Group joins our press gallery next on PowerPlay. Another month, another rate hike. The Bank of Canada increased their benchmark rate by 50 basis points this morning. It now stands at 4.25%. That's the highest since 2008. We were going to make a reference to what song was top of the charts back then, but we were told we shouldn't by our senior producer. Look it up yourself. You'll see why. This hike is the seventh consecutive rate hike and the final one this year. 
And the hike comes at a time where Canadians are already feeling the pinch in their pocketbooks from inflation. So with some Canadians that are already spread thin for the holidays, could this rate hike be the final straw that breaks the camel's back? Let's bring in the press gallery to dig in. We've got Stephanie Levitch. She's from the Toronto Star, Politico's ZN Lum, as well as our special guest. We've got Randall Bartlett. He's the Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins Group. Thank you all for being here. Randall, I want to ask you first, who's at risk of being the most affected by today's rate hike? Well, the people who are at risk of being most affected by today's rate hike are those that are most exposed to rising interest rates. So those are homeowners, particularly those that bought during the pandemic and took on variable rate mortgages. Those are the folks who are, uh, who are most vulnerable to this uh, today's rate hike. We also have, uh, you know, consumers who have borrowed to fund consumer debt as well. And then uh, there's also the businesses that are highly indebted, particularly those coming out of the pandemic and sectors that were, uh, that were notably hard hit. Uh, by lockdowns and that sort of thing. So certainly, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty broad group of Canadians, but uh, you know, exposure right now to, uh, to higher interest rates is, uh, is really at an all-time high within the Canadian economy. I also want to ask you quickly, I mean, a lot of people were expecting to be less than the 50 basis points. Is that a bad sign that the rate of increase remains this high, Randall? Well, we were among the camp expecting a 25 basis point hike today. And so it did come as a bit of a surprise and it uh, surprised about half of economists who are of the same view that we were. And uh, really, it's it's a function of the fact that, you know, inflation remains high. Inflation expectations remain high among Canadian uh, consumers and businesses. Wage growth remains above 5 percent. And we've seen that, uh, you know, the Canadian economy still is operating uh, at a pace which is well above uh, the trend growth of uh, of. Uh, overall output. So there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, push the Bank of Canada to make that 50 point uh, move today. But we think uh, this will be the, uh, not just the last one of the year, but the last one of this hiking cycle. Zian, it may be the last one of, in this cycle, but it does come at a time when Canadians are going to be going into the holiday season looking to spend money. I mean, talk to me a little bit about the timing here. Yeah, the timing isn't opportune, obviously. Um, there's a different dimension to this as well, because I was talking to the Premier of the Northwest Territories today, and then she was telling me how, you know, the price in the North, prices in the North, it's always expensive, roads, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, food. But there's also a different dimension to this in that it's also raising the cost of infrastructure projects, like huge kind of builds, like roads and the highways. So she specifically said that um, projects like um, major highways uh, mm -hmm. that were costed maybe a million dollars per kilometer in 2020 are now costing three million dollars. So now some premiers are have the tough task for their jobs to mm -hmm. go to Ottawa and to ask for more money, um, which is kind of uh, sets up an interesting scenario for the government maybe in the spring when they're kind of cooking up their budget because now they're going to be in a position to kind of acquiesce or just um, give more money to the premiers to complete these kind of big infrastructure projects that they need done uh, that are now kind of uh, bubbling in costs. Right. And uh, that's going to set up an interesting communications exercise for the government in the spring because we're going to see, you know, uh, kind of the government trying to communicate, this is why we have to add more money to these projects that we've right. previously announced. And that's going to kind of give fuel to uh, opposition fire for more attacks to, you know, point at these cost overruns and just call them boondoggles.
Yeah, Steph, we saw Randy Boston earlier in the show say, look, we have all these targeted approaches that we are, have been rolling out. But in the fall economic statement, at that point in time, we knew that there could have been another rate hike. Did they miss an opportunity here to try and get ahead of that? It's a, it's a question of, you know, the what's the opportunity? What is the lane they didn't take that they ought to have taken? Mm -hmm. And there's obviously an argument going that the more government puts into the pockets of Canadians, the more that has the potential to further increase inflation, right? You're spending more things. We still have supply chain problems. There are longer problems down the road covering this issue. So you go back to, okay, if we're looking at who are the people the most affected, perhaps the question is not, does the government need to help more people, but do they need to help more targeted people with more, which is to say, is the dental benefit they've just proposed, is that enough? Is the housing benefit top up that they've proposed, is that enough? Is changing the way they've structured the Canada workers' benefit so people don't have to wait for the checks, is that enough? And right. it, it, is there a way to retool those existing things? I think we're broadly acknowledging that there is a segment of society hit much harder, but everyone's feeling the pinch. I mean, to Zian's point about infrastructure projects, think about housing as well. Right. What becomes, what mean, what affordable housing means changes as the cost of housing becomes more expensive, right? Housing affordability, can people afford to be in their homes? What if they can't afford to, no longer to be in their homes? There's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, for the government to figure out which to address without creating bigger problems is the central problem for the government. And, Randall, one of the other central problems for the government is so-called soft landings and making sure that as we head into 2023 that Canada is insulated against a possible global recession. you think they've done that so far with everything that we've seen at the end of this year? Well, I think the federal government's uh, measures in the fall economic statement were relatively well targeted toward uh, those folks at the lower end of the income distribution who are really feeling the pinch of particularly higher food and shelter costs and spend a disproportionate share of their incomes on that. So whether it's, uh, you know, it was already discussed the changes to the Canada workers benefit, whether it was the GST increase, the Canada housing benefit, certainly those measures were targeted toward uh, those folks at the low end of the income distribution. I think they are going to, uh, that is, will provide a bit of a cushion, uh, but it's still going to be challenging times ahead. We think that uh, it's not just going to be housing that's going to be uh, hit by higher interest rates and has been already, but it's going to be consumption. We saw that in um, the Q3 um, uh, GDP release that came out last week, that uh, consumption declined in the third quarter of, uh, of this year. And so this is uh, in line with what the Bank of Canada is trying to engineer through slowing the economy, through higher interest rates. And it's, uh, it's, it's been effective and looks to be like, it looks as though it's going to be uh, even that much more effective going forward with uh, a great deal of weakness expected in the first half of next year. I've got less than a minute to go. We'll try and split it between Zian and Steph here. Um, we know that the Bank of Canada, Zian, is separate from the government. But if this continues in this direction, do you think that the Conservatives' criticism of the Bank of Canada will continue to gain steam? Oh, absolutely, because there's a, you know, a tremendous um, opportunity there for them to uh, shore their kind of base in lead up to the federal budget, which will, you know, uh, rely on a confidence vote to pass. Mm -hmm. And depending on the durability of this uh, NDP liberal deal, um, we may see some cracks, we may not. But, yeah, we'll see with the yeah. attacks to come. And, Steph, it took only maybe 10 seconds before the tweet from Pierre Polyev came out after the rate hike. I mean, this is just right in his wheelhouse, isn't it? It is in his wheelhouse, but Pierre Polyev is reaching a point now in his new tenure as leader that he's got to start moving beyond the base. So the question becomes, does he continue with a line of attack that some economists, some experts say, hey, hey, now, you know, you're going a bit too far, you're, you're pushing into the independence question about the Bank of Canada, and how does he sort of reshape that narrative to present a more credible to some um, point of view that helps him win a broader base of support, not just fire up the existing base?
Steph Levitz and Zian Lum. You are going to stay right there. Randall, thank you so much for making the time. We appreciate talking with you as always. Still to come, an RCMP contract is causing national security concerns. We'll dig into that on the press gallery when we're joined by a special guest, former national security analyst Stephanie Carvin. PowerPlay will be right back in a moment. On God's green earth, did this government think it was a good idea to give a company accused of espionage the control of our anti-espionage technology? We are looking very, very carefully at the way in which our independent public servants screen this particular contract. I share the members' concern. An RCMP equipment contract is causing national security concerns, as you just saw there. Canadian company Sinclair Technologies was awarded an RCMP contract to supply radios. In 2017, Sinclair Technologies was taken over by Hytera, a company with ties to the Chinese government. A 21-count federal indictment that was unsealed earlier this year in Illinois charged Hytera with conspiring with former Motorola employees to steal technologies. The U.S. Justice Department says Hytera and the former employees worked for nearly a decade to use Motorola's proprietary information to develop products and train Hytera employees. Now, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, you said there, says that his office will review the contract. And how concerning is this for Canada's national security? Well, let's bring back the press gallery Joining me now again are Toronto Star reporter Stephanie Levitz, political reporter and playbook author Zian Lum, and special guest is former National Security Advisor and Associate Professor at Carleton University, Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie Carvin, we're going to start with you. How concerning is this for Canada's national security? It's not great, right, in the sense that the agency that is tasked with charging entities with espionage is, in fact, using equipment from China. Um, I mean, that's, that's the bare basics of this, right? Um, that you, you don't want to have a Chinese controlled company um, basically providing the technology that's going to be used in very sensitive national security operations. So yeah, from that perspective, it's a concern. There's another concern that often gets less press as well. And that is the fact that, you know, this company in getting its bid effectively outbid another Canadian company based in Quebec. And they said it's because essentially it was a Canadian company that had suddenly started manufacturing in China and was now able to undercut other companies as well, including the one that that was outbid. So there's a kind of geoeconomic situation here as well that isn't so much a national security threat individually, but in the aggregate, you do worry that, you know, uh, you know, China has picked certain industries that it's willing to subsidize in ways that it, so it can undercut Western companies that in some ways affect our economy. So I think it's really those two threats that that the situation effectively represents the fact that, you know, a Chinese controlled company is now apparently providing not just one contract, but multiple contracts, according to your own reporting uh, for national security agencies. But uh, in that the fact that it's also potentially uh, undercutting Canadian companies in strategic industries as well. And Stephanie Lovitz, I mean, this comes as the Canadian government unveils its Indo-Pacific strategy. What kind of pressure does this put on the federal government now? I mean, not just that, but of course, you know, just today we have the, um, the innovation minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, introducing changes to the Investment Act, right, right. which is supposed to guard against 
Chinese companies moving in and um, particular, not just Chinese, but, uh, you know, foreign national yeah. companies moving in on critically sensitive pieces of the Canadian economy. And so, for one, I suppose this highlights the issue, right? It highlights all the uh, an yet another instance of the of a Chinese state-controlled firm making a play for something in Canada. I think the piece that Stephanie Carvin brings up is really important here as well, because you've seen the Liberal government shift a narrative um, in the last little while trying to counter China. Mm -hmm. It uses words like friend-shoring. It uses words like decoupling, where right. it wants to move our economy away. Some of that is also about bringing things home, bringing industry home. And the lesson here is this. If we're going to want to do that as a country, it may in fact cost more. Right. So which is it, right? Do we want the cheapest contract or do we want the one that, one, encourages the growth of the Canadian economy, but two, allows the country to be relatively secure in its own systems and its own information? Zian, I wanted to touch on something that I touched on with Ambassador Cohen. Um, on the American side, this indictment was unsealed in February. So what does this do for Canada's relationship in terms of federal security with the U.S.? Well, it's a big, you know, needs improvement kind of uh, reminder for them yeah. to maybe talk more, maybe establish more working groups together to kind of communicate this, because this whole debacle is a, you know, classic example of bad communication, left hand not talking to the right hand, uh, potentially advice being written but not landing where it's supposed to go or being read. Um, to Stephanie's point, um, the language uh, on China that's the tougher language is relatively new, too. So this obviously looks very bad in retrospect now that we have this Indo-Pacific strategy out. But that doesn't excuse, like, the obvious bad optics of this deal. Right. Uh, since, because the FCC um, blacklisted the company in February, uh, no, in March of 2021. Right. And this contract was awarded in October 6, 2021. So it um, doesn't look really good. Yeah. Um, the other side of this is you know, the government does have the option to potentially spin this into a uh, example of, oh, now this example is why we're bringing in this like national security screen, this national security review right. for all investments. So that's also another opportunity for the government to kind of uh, put this back on track, I guess. Good timing, bad timing, right? Or, or you know, spin, spin out of it anyways. Stephanie Carvin, I wanted to ask you, though, about those communication gaps between the Canadian and American national security counterparts. I mean, I asked Ambassador Cohen about it, possibly eroding that trust. Um, but I wanted to also ask you about, you know, the, the question of this contract now expires in 2024. Does that leave Canada in a position where it's difficult to cancel it? Uh, but maybe first on that sort of confidence between the Americans and the Canadians? So, yeah, I mean, I think what this shows is that there does need to be better coordination between democratic countries. I mean, we've seen a push for this in several, uh, you know, countries, whether the United Kingdom, uh, you know, the United States. And, and now we've even seen, of course, uh, the Australia, U Australia, United States and uh, Great Britain coming together in, in August to kind of uh, work on technology and technology safety. And, you know, whether or not Canada is going to join remains to be seen. But I think this is something to be to be done. Um, honestly, I, I strongly suspect this was a case where you had an approved vendor who was already in the system. And one of the challenges is once a vendor is probably approved, they're probably not reviewed for security later on. I strongly suspect this is what happened. I mean, uh, rather than, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, when you're dealing with sensitive technology that someone didn't at least Google the name of the company or do uh, some kind of due diligence. But, you know, we are going to have to really 
up our game when it comes to, uh, you know, buying these components, buying these parts, especially for our national security agencies, but even for our regular agencies as well. Uh, our tax agencies, our agriculture agencies, they all have very sensitive information, which other com uh, countries want as well. And it, it really, I think, goes to show that we need to work with our allies when, when we are uh, making these decisions. Stephanie Carvin, Stephanie Levitz, Zian Lum, thank you all for joining us. I'm sure we will continue to follow the story. Coming up, the government tables changes, as we had just spoken about, to that Investment Canada Act today. How will growing national security concerns factor into these changes? CTV News' Glenn McGregor will be here to break down this new bill next on PowerPlay. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne is tabling a bill tonight to modernize the Investment Canada Act and address national security concerns. It was billed as the most significant updates in more than a decade. CTV National's new senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor has been digging into this legislation. He joins me right now. Glenn, what is the government doing here? Making some changes to something called the Investment Canada Act, and that's a piece of legislation the government looks at new investment by foreigners in Canada to decide if they are in Canada's net benefit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they consider, of course, is national security, and this is becoming a much more important issue uh, in recent decades, so they want to give the government more tools to do this. And they're specifying uh, 15 individual sec industrial sectors in which they're going to require companies who are planning to invest in Canada to file reports, uh, uh, applications in advance. And uh, one of these is critically is critical minerals, right. Uh, right? So really important in car batteries. This is a real growing sector. This is one of these sectors where they want to apply more scrutiny before the transaction to buy a company is completed. There's some other things in there in the legislation that's going to basically kind of hand over some of the powers, take them away from cabinet and give them to the Minister of Industry and the Minister of Public Safety jointly so they can start that review process for security reasons, and you know, in particular, in the topic you were just uh, discussing in the, right. in the last segment um, about this about a, comp a company that's owned by a Chinese company, uh, that's might, something that might, that might trigger this right. this closer look to see if this is in Canada's interest, net benefit, but also from a national security point of view. Is it all about China? Is it really more about protecting Canadian interests? Because we know that <clears throat> François Philippe Champagne has been talking about how he wants Canada to be the battery of the world. Well, Industry Canada says that this is country agnostic, that it applies to all foreign investors with some exceptions for some of our closer uh, allies in, in certain sectors. But yeah, it's obviously about China. Uh, it's about China because they have the most money to invest. They're coming here. They want to buy up resources, uh, especially in the energy sector. Remember going back 2012, there was a big issue that faced the Harper government, right. and that was the acquisition of a uh, oil and gas company called Nexon by right. a Chinese company called Sinoc. Uh, Harper ultimately approved that purchase because the the attraction of these investments is quite large right, right. They're, they're, these, these, you know china is ready to pump in a lot of money invest a lot of money in canada and now it's not uh, fossil fuel technologies it's it's uh, uh, the next phase the, the next phase it's the yeah. green, it's the green technologies so if you're a chinese company uh, that wants to buy say a lithium mine in canada you are going to face uh, earlier uh, and more detailed scrutiny through this process and something that obviously Canada wants to make sure by doing this, guarding well against. 
CTV's senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. Thanks so much for breaking this down on such short notice. We appreciate that. And that is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.